Take your Bibles in and turn with me to Hebrews and chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll read what will be our text this evening from verse 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray briefly again. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank that these things are written for our learning. These things are written to make Christ known to us. In order that we might draw comfort and encouragement from what we read. And what is preached, come by your Holy Spirit and move among us this evening and glorify Christ, we pray. Amen. <coughs> Many of you will have heard of George Whitfield. He was probably one of the greatest gifts of the exalted Christ to the church. He lived in the 18th century. Someone has estimated, I don't know how, but estimated he preached over 18,000 sermons and preached to somewhere in the region of 10 million people on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, Whitfield crossed the Atlantic many, many times. In those days, it was a hazardous journey. It was a sailing ship, and you were at the mercy of the tides, the currents, and the prevailing winds and prevailing currents. It could take you anything up to two or three months to sail across the Atlantic Ocean, especially if you were going from England to America, because you were sailing against the prevailing winds and against the current. It was a dangerous and hazardous journey. The captains of those ships that sailed that journey would not be able to guarantee that you would be get to your destination. You could end up, depending on the weather and the gales and all the rest, anywhere from Boston in New England, several hundred miles down the coast to Chesapeake Bay, that sort of area, if you think of America in those terms. Three or four hundred miles. There's no guarantee you would get to your destination. Your boat might be caught in a vicious Atlantic gale and sink. There are records of ships that never left really British waters. They were wrecked on the Irish coast, on the Atlantic, rough Irish Atlantic coast. You were uncertain as to the destination. You were uncertain as to the journey. Would you get there or not? The writer to the Hebrews had a similar problem with these Hebrews. Would they get to their destination? 
Would they attain heaven? Would they enter into the rest, the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God? He has spoken in the previous chapters about the wilderness generation. With an evil heart of unbelief, they had fallen away. They died in the wilderness. The book of Hebrews is about perseverance, running the race and crossing the line and finishing the race and entering into heaven. The writer to the Hebrews was afraid that they would not do that. That's why we find in this verse, in verse 14, he exhorts them, let us hold fast our confession, our faith in Jesus Christ. They were in danger of drifting away, losing their way, and not attaining that destination. I don't think those fears of the Hebrew writer, writer to the Hebrews, I don't think those fears were unfounded. When I was a pastor in the church in Crawley, I would often ask people that I visited who were members of the church, I would say, what is your greatest fear? And often they would ask, answer that question by saying that I will fall away. That I will fall away, that I will not finish the race. That was a very real fear. And I would suggest that it is one of the fears that we may well entertain. Now, of course, Satan, as we've been hearing from David, Satan will not be slow to cash in, as it were, on those fears and those doubts and those anxieties. But as we turn to these verses in Hebrews chapter 4, it's very significant that what he does to answer that and to give them a basis for them to finish the race and to hold fast to their faith, to their confession. He sets before them the provision that God has made for them to persevere. What has God done? Or more, perhaps more correctly, who has he sent? Who has he established in order that we may persevere? And of course the answer to that question is the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. So I want to examine with you the basis on which we have that confidence and we may hold fast to our confidence. And I want to encourage anyone who has doubts and fears and anxieties and wonders, will I really make it to the end? Will I really make it to heaven? I want to see those fears banished, but it is not my doing. It says, I am able to point you to Jesus Christ. May the Spirit open our eyes to see and our hearts then to believe. The first thing that we see in our text is this. That Jesus Christ is fully suitable, fully qualified, qualified to meet our needs. He is our great high priest. He is our high priest, but he is our great high priest. You've heard the term mega, great. Well, he is our mega high priest. 
That's, that's the word that is used here. And it's, it's, saying, it's saying he's more than the Old Testament high priest. This is the one supreme great high priest. There is no other. No one who can compare with him. No one who is like him. Remember Aaron, I read that passage in Leviticus 16. He is better by far than Aaron. We won't go into in what way he is of the order of Melchizedek. That will take us in another direction this evening. That needs a separate sermon. But David preached on that some time ago when he worked his way through the Hebrews. Under the old covenant, the high priest Aaron could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. No one else could go. Only he could go in with those sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And what did he have to do? He had to make atonement for his own sins, as well as the sins of the people. They were all transgressors. Aaron was a sinner. A sinful man. He had to offer those sacrifices. and Then he could enter into the presence of God. Jesus Christ is far greater. He is exalted. He died once for all on the cross. He made atonement for sin. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. He rose from the dead. He then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we are told in this passage that we're looking at that he has passed through the heavens. That's a way of saying that he's now exalted. He is now at the right hand of his Father. That was never true of Aaron. He remained with his feet firmly on the ground, still, on earth. He would have to go through the same procedure next year on the Day of Atonement. But our Lord Jesus Christ has finished that work here upon earth. He has now passed through the heavens. He is now exalted. Aaron, I say, never did that. So where is Christ now? He is in that heavenly sanctuary. He's in heaven, in the holy of holies. And he is there on our behalf. Notice what he says in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. He's there on our behalf. As much as he died on the cross on our behalf, he is now in heaven on our behalf. He is representing us. He is doing something of the utmost importance for us in heaven. He's not idle there at all. But notice who it is, how he is described in this text. It is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus. He became a man. He was given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins but he is the eternal son of God he is the God man Jesus Christ but as the son of God he is eternal he is transcendent 
beyond the limits of time and of space. He's alive forevermore, unlike Aaron and the earthly priests. He is now risen. He now reigns as the God-man. This is our great high priest. He's there on our behalf. Now you may say, but he's a long way off. I've never seen him. He's transcendent. He's exalted. Is he then aloof? Is he remote from us? Detached from us? Detached from the realities of our day-to-day life here? And our experience? Do our fears and our troubles, our doubts and our anxieties, our temptations, our battles with sin and Satan, does it have any influence and effect upon him? Is he aware of those things? If your answer to that is, well, he's aloof, then you are greatly mistaken. Far from it. Far from it. Now, the very fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and he is our great high priest, that in and of itself should be enough for us to say then, we will hold fast to this Jesus, this eternal Son of God. But there's far more here. There are far more reasons. It's not only who he is, not only who he is, but it is his disposition, his attitude towards us. He's not aloof. He's not remote. Because we are told in our verse here, going on to verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Aaron could never attain anything near that. Our Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. He is over all. He is Jesus, the Son of God. And yet, yet, he is full of sympathy. Full of sympathy with us. Full of sympathy with us in our weaknesses. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It's put rather strangely in verse 15. It's a double negative. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. It's a way of emphasizing here is one who does, who can, who's able, who's willing to sympathize with us. He stands with us. He is exalted in heaven, but he is sympathizing with us in our struggles here upon the earth. He's not remote from us. When he took flesh and blood, we're told in the previous chapters, in chapter 2 and verse 17, we're told that he was made like his brethren. It's because he became a man. And even though he is now exalted in heaven, he is still that man, that God-man. And he's able to know and understand and sympathize with our weaknesses. He became a merciful and a faithful high priest. Chapter 2 and verse 17. In things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is turning aside the wrath of God, 
for the sins of the people, that he that in for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now it's put another way in our text. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He has been tempted to the end that he may help us in the midst of our temptations. As Satan batters us and seeks to drive a wedge between us and our Savior Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ understands. He sympathizes. He understands your fears, your doubts, your anxieties, the pressures that you feel. You see, he was here for those 30 plus years. While he was here, he suffered. He was tempted. He was tried. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He sighed and he wept. He prayed and agonized. He knew pain. He knew the fears of death. Remember his experience in the garden of Gethsemane. Pleading with his father that were it possible, this cup might pass from him. So intense was that struggle that he sweated drops of blood. He knew what it was to bear with contempt and sorrow and hatred. You remember how they taunted him on the cross. If you're the son of God, come down. What contempt. There he was, crucified, undergoing great pain and sorrow. You see, then he is thoroughly conversant. He is thoroughly aware of our trials and temptations. You are never alone in what you go through in this world. Never alone in temptations. Never alone in trials. Never alone in your pains and sorrows and concerns and anxieties and fears and doubts. There is one who, as it were, even though he is in heaven, draws near and is able to comfort us because he has a heart, a disposition of sympathy, of compassion. He feels for us in our sufferings. The Bible says here that he was tempted in all points as we are. I find my mind is, my head can't get around that. How, 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 some of the things that I am tempted with. You're saying the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted with those things? Say, I find that very difficult. But that's what the scripture says. He was tempted in all points like we are. But then notice what it says at the end of verse 15. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. He learned by experience what suffering was. But in everything that he underwent, he never, ever sinned. Now you may say, well, if he never, ever sinned, how could he really sympathize with us? He never knew what it was to be a sinner. 
But you realize that is just to, to, to say that and to say, well, then Jesus Christ was a sinner. Then, then where is salvation? There is no salvation. This is one who is without sin. Without sin. Had he sinned, he could never have been our great high priest. He would have liked to be like Aaron. He'd have to make atonement for his own sin. But there's another reason why we need to understand how he was without sin. He was tempted, but he did not sin. But in so doing, you see, he understood then the full force of a temptation. He was tempted in a way that you do not know. Because what happens when we are tempted to sin, we fall pretty soon. Our Lord Jesus Christ never fell. He endured those temptations. He knew the full force and the full strength of them. So he knows even more so what it is you're going through. That's the extent of his sympathy and his compassion. We saw this morning how the devil tempted him in the, the wilderness. Tempted him in his self-concern for food and drink. Tempted him to popular acclaim. Tempted him in his am so-called ambition for power in that area of his life. But he did not yield. Whether he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights is not clear. But he was tempted and he endured the full force and power of that temptation. And he did not yield. And at no point did he yield. In Gethsemane he did not yield. On the cross, he did not yield. He could have come down from the cross. He could have called upon legions of angels. But he did not. He suffered. He endured that suffering. He underwent that pain and that sorrow in order to save his people from their sins. But as he was doing all of that suffering, so he was gathering, as it were, a heart of sympathy and compassion an understanding for all those who would follow him and be his disciples. Peter says that on the cross he was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He suffered, but he did not threaten. What did he do? He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. See how Lord Jesus Christ heart full of sympathy. That's his disposition towards us. He feels for us. But at the same time, he is without sin. You see how suitable he is as our great high priest? He's there in heaven for us. For you. He's there. It's real. You know what happens when we sin. We're drawn away by our own sinful desires. Our own lusts. We're enticed. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not have a corrupt heart. So he was not drawn away by his own inward desires. His delight was to do the will of his father. To obey the law of God. He did that on our behalf. 
He was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. So you see, as Jesus, as the Son of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ now as that sympathetic high priest, touched with the feelings of our infirmities, he is thoroughly equipped. He is totally qualified, altogether suitable in his person and in his disposition towards us to bring help to us in the midst of our fears and our temptations and trials. Don't ever say to yourself, it's a lie of the devil. There is no one who understands me. Have you been there? You felt yourself so alone. But you see what's happening. Satan is driving that wedge between you and your Savior and making you feel as if you're the only one. And no one else understands you. You can't talk to friends. You can't talk to family. You can talk to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is one who understands. And more than that, there is one who is full of sympathy. You see, this same Lord Jesus Christ not only died on the cross to save you from your sins, but he also lives in heaven to make intercession, to pray for you in your troubles and in your difficulties and in your temptations. You remember what he said to Peter? Before Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But then he adds, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not that is true of our Savior. But that is not all. Our passage does not simply affirm that Christ intercedes for us. He does. In fact, that is not the main teaching of this particular passage. Because he is saying here, there is a way to enjoy the comfort, to banish those fears that I have, how we are to be helped in our situation in which we find ourselves here. He is asserting, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is secondly telling us we must come with full confidence to the throne of grace. See, it's not simply that he's interceding for us, he is. But here is something that's part of our experience. We are now to come with confidence to the throne of grace. And not just come anyhow, but come with boldness. Boldness. That's the language of freedom and of liberty. Drawing near to God instead of drawing back from God. Coming and speaking, literally saying it all. Telling it like it is. That's boldness. 
honesty, frankness, transparency, openness, coming as you are, saying what it is you feel. You, you remember how in the Psalms David comes and he tells the Lord his troubles. He pours them out before him. You ask him for what you need. But what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is if you're going to hold fast your confession of faith, you're going to be remain faithful, if you're going to persevere, then you need to enter more and more into what it means to come boldly to the throne of grace. Is that your experience? This is the language of experience. Christian experience. You come confessing your sins, confessing your fears, your weaknesses, your dullness, your coldness, and a multitude of other things. Your wanderings of heart, the wanderings of your affections, you can't fix them at times on heaven and on Christ. And you say, well, how, how dare I come to the throne of grace and to come boldly? What right have I to come? Aaron couldn't do that. None of the Old Testament saints could do that in the way that we in the New Covenant are exalted to come. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we come boldly. In chapter 10 and verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, it's a throne of grace and we are bidden to come boldly to that throne. Now, if it was a throne of judgment, you wouldn't go near, would you? You'd run a mile. But it's not a throne of judgment for those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. By believing upon Christ and drawing fresh courage from the fact that that blood has been shed. You look at his tender compassion. You look at his profound feeling. That all-encompassing sympathy and his love. And those hands are stretched out to you saying, come. Come to the throne of grace. Come and pour out your troubles. I have a heart that beats with your heart. I am full of sympathy. I understand what's going on in your life. You say, but I don't feel that way. The battle's too hard. What are you doing? You're standing aloof. When Jesus Christ says, come boldly to the throne of grace. He hasn't stood aloof. He's not remote from you. And he's saying, you don't have to be remote and aloof from me. You come by my precious blood. You come to the throne of grace. Satan will tempt you to keep your distance. To stay away. Not to come to Christ. It's again his method of driving a wedge between you and your Savior, Jesus Christ. But you're coming to a throne of grace. Grace is simply the undeserved favor of God. You come there in the merits of Jesus Christ. You come as those washed by his precious blood. 
this Lord Jesus Christ still receives sinners. That's how you came to him in the very first place. And you still come to him as a sinner. A wonder of wonders. His heart has already gone out to you. And God has made provision with a throne of grace. Sadly, in our hearts, there is a secret pride. We think that we can stand. We think we have some kind of ability to stand. And Satan will puff up that pride. He will infuse his poison into our minds and our hearts. He will tell us, you're not worthy to come. Shout out at him, liar! Liar! Yes, you're not worthy to come. But I have the Saviour, Jesus Christ. His blood has been shed. Never feel that your sin is too much. Or your troubles are too heavy and your burden too great. That you do not go to Christ at the throne of grace. Having Christ, you have boldness. Having Christ, you have confidence. You will be heard. You will be welcomed. You will be received by a fully qualified, compassionate, great high priest. But our text is not finished yet. There is a third thing. Come expecting. Come expecting to receive full help in your time of need. Not only is a suitable saviour, Fully qualified because he's Jesus, the Son of God. Fully qualified because of his heart and disposition of compassion towards us. We're to come with full confidence to the throne of grace. And when we come to the throne of grace, what do we find? Our needs are met. We may obtain mercy, verse 16, and find grace to help in time of need. What that means is when you go boldly to the throne of grace, the blood of Jesus Christ, you don't come away empty-handed. The door is not shut in your face. Christ never says, not interested in you. You're going to one who is full of mercy, full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, as the Son of God, as your sympathetic high priest. So you come expecting to receive full sympathy from one who is replete with compassion, abundant in grace. Christ's arm of power, as well as his heart of compassion, reaches out to you. And as it were, undergirds you. Parents, what do you do when your children are in trouble? They're distressed. Maybe they've tumbled, they've cut themselves. Maybe they've fallen out with a friend who's no longer a friend, said some nasty things. 101 things. What do you do with them? You hold out your arms and say, come, come. Put your arms around you hug them. You wipe away their tears and their sorrows. How much greater than a parent 
is our great high priest. He reaches out his arm of power and his hand of mercy. He wipes away our tears and our sorrows. He strengthens us at that very point, that time of need. He heals our wounds. Sometimes we feel as if we're lying on the battlefield and we've been wounded by Satan. We wonder whether we shall live. Christ comes. He picks us up and heals our wounds, our troubles. You remember how Peter was restored after he denied the Lord Jesus Christ? And what did, what did the Lord ask him? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But who was it asking that? It was the one who said, I pray for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And in his love and compassion, he restored Peter to his discipleship and to his calling. Paul had this thorn in the flesh. Three times he asked the Lord to remove it. And the answer was no each time. But it was more than that. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And my friends, my dear friends, that grace of Christ is the same grace administered to Paul and it's sufficient for you in all your troubles, doubts, fears, struggles, temptations, trials, whatever it may be. That grace is sufficient for you. Because you have an all-sufficient Savior, full of mercy, full of grace. Satan's ploy is to crush you and to destroy you. Christ plays a very different hand. He is there to refresh you and strengthen you so that you keep on going, so that you persevere. So that you hold fast. So that you do not fall. So that you run. And you run the race to the very end. And cross the finishing line. There will be many times in your life as a Christian. When you stand in need of grace. The longer I live the more I realize every day. Every moment of every day I stand in need of this grace. And I need to obtain mercy and find grace to help in my time of need. Now there are times when it is more extreme. When you go through a very, very difficult period. A very difficult trial and you do not know what to do, where to turn. But special grace is given at that point of need. At that point of need. Let me assure you, this battle doesn't get any easier the longer you live. <laughs> In some ways it gets far more difficult. Far more difficult. The trials... And the temptations of Satan 
will never cease until Christ comes. But whatever we go through, grace is all sufficient for us in Christ. That grace, that mercy was obtained by those who have been martyred for their faith. None of us have undergone persecution like those martyrs have done. But should persecution come, grace and mercy may be obtained at the throne of grace from Christ to withstand that persecution and to go through that, even if our life is taken away from us. Times of sickness, times of very real temptation to sin, times when we feel depressed and low and deserted by God. Times when we have a specific duty to carry out, a responsibility fulfilled, and we don't feel adequate for it. We're not adequate for it, but what do we do? Say, well, I'll just make the best of it. No, we go to the throne of grace. We go to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. When the time comes for us to leave this world, to die, what do we do? Does Christ abandon us then? He knew what it was to die. He knew. You're not alone. You go to obtain mercy and grace. Christ is a suitable high priest in every occasion, every single day, every single year that you live on this earth, he will never leave you. He will never abandon you. The throne of grace is always, always there. The blood of Christ never loses its power to cleanse you so that you may come boldly to the throne of grace. Where there are some of you here this evening I think I'm speaking a strange language to you. Christ, is he really my high priest? Let, let me go back. Let me go back and say, if you're not a Christian, what is it that you're most afraid of? What is it you're most afraid of? Let me tell you what you ought to be most afraid of. The judgment of God. The judgment of a holy God. Because you sinned against him. All of you here, even if you're not a Christian, you know about sin. You read about it in the Bible. You see it every day. But do you realize that you, you are the sinner? You are guilty before God. You need your sins cleansing. Or you will come under the judgment of God and be cast into hell. That ought to send more than a shudder down your spine. But I'm here to tell you you can escape that judgment. By turning to Jesus Christ. You see, you won't turn to Jesus Christ until you realize, I am a sinner. 
I am guilty. I am lost. I'm a wandering sheep who's gone astray from the fold of God. I need to be redeemed. I need to be cleansed. I need to be someone who will atone for my sins. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And he reaches out to you this evening and says, come unto me. Come to me. Come on, come to me. Come to me and I will cleanse you. Don't walk away. Don't draw back. Christ stands with open arms to receive sinners. He came into the world sinners to save. That's his purpose. And once he has saved you, he will never let go of you in his love. He will bring you home to glory with himself. To a world where there is no sin. Where there is no Satan. Where there are no trials and temptations. No sorrows. No tears. A world of eternal bliss and happiness. And you will own Jesus Christ. As the one who's purchased those blessings and benefits for you. These verses tell us of the provision that God has made for weary saints. Those who are afraid they won't run the race and finish it. Those who are afraid they might drift away. God has provided his son, Jesus Christ. And what a provision he has made. One with all power. Yet one with all pity and compassion and sympathy. Who do you know like that here upon this earth? Not even the best wife or the best husband, the best father or mother can compare with Christ. He's perfectly capable, perfectly suitable. Therefore, I say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, hold fast to your confession of faith. Come boldly to the throne of grace and find that mercy and that grace to help you in your time of need. Amen.